Today on Cooking by Heart, we have the luxury of some additional conversation with John Sebastian. John talks about writing music for movies with Woody Allen and Francis Coppola, his experience with the beginnings of the tie-dye sensation, his uh, serendipitous brush with immortality at the original Woodstock Festival, and we end with a conversation about his current recording project. Please, feel free to join us. The first movie that The Spoonful got involved in was uh, a Woody Allen movie uh, uh, called, um, uh, well, it was called Pal for a long time. And then they changed the title. I was pissed. I'd written this title tune that I thought was great. Mm -hmm. So they changed the name to What's Up Tiger Lily, for which I had no song. But The Spoonful had a ball doing the music to that. Oh, cool. And and so that was a kind of point of entry. Mm -hmm. And it was uh, not very long after that Francis Ford Coppola uh, gives a call. Somehow or another, I eventually get a call. And it's... Francis. Yeah. uh, Yeah. And we start talking and I go, I don't know, my my, inside as I'm listening, I'm going, this guy's from here. He's from my part of town. Even. Yeah. And Uh, he's Italian. And he's Italian and all of this stuff I'm I'm accumulating in, in this first conversation. But anyway, we get together. Uh, He turns out to be so good. His instincts for music. And one of the reasons is his father's a musician. That's right. Who is also kicking ass on the few little uh, cues that he gives him. Yes. (laughs) They just like great orchestral cues. Yeah. And, uh, uh, but uh, what he wanted from me was more like, you know, he showed me the movie. And in fact, he played over a, a love scene, he played Monday, Monday. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, he said, yeah, so I'm sort of that kind of thing, you know. Mama, mamas and papas. Mamas and papas, yeah. yep. And uh, so uh, uh, that, uh, I don't know, I I had sort of a frame of Darling Be Home Soon, and it fit perfectly because it's sort of the same tempo. Mm-hmm. A song that you had written previously? Songs are often uh, in progress. Ah. And I don't think I had really nailed it down uh, by the time that, because by the time I recorded it, we were recording with orchestra. Right. Uh, Yeah, because that was the first opportunity uh, or or the first time I ever had any reason to Mm -hmm. be involved in, uh, you know, orchestral uh, approach to mm-hmm. things. So working with uh, with Coppola was fantastic. I learned a whole lot. Uh, my my perfect example is uh, he says, "Okay, now I want a theme for." He says, "You know, I I got my lead lady, the good girl, and I got the bad girl." Thing is, my bad girl, she's just a little more appealing than my <laughs> good girl. So I have to give the good girl a little push. Yeah. What I yeah. want is a piece of music that swells up under her 
when she first appears that buoys we're gonna, her. We're going to yeah. use that as a weapon as, mm-hmm. as time goes on. Right. Right. And then, so we finish Amy's theme and uh, uh, kind of proud of it. And I play it for him and he goes, terrific. You know what I'm going to do? What? He says, I'm not going to use it for Amy. (laughs) I may use it for Amy once, Mm -hmm. but I'm going to use it to the scene when he's walking around 42nd Street in the porn theaters and that real, because that period where it was really pre-Disney 42nd Street. You know, you could quickly see the the setting. And he says, now I'm going to put that music under Bernard, the lead guy, uh, while he's walking around 42nd Street. And you know why I'm going to do that? To ma- You know what the audience is going to be thinking when I do that? <laughs> and the two of us go, I mean, I think it was me and Yanofsky are sitting there yeah. going, well, this is going to be a wrong answer. You know, we can tell. <laughs> Whatever we say, it's, it's going to be wrong. Be a wrong and uh, Coppola says, I'm going to put it under Bernard walking around 42nd Street. And the audience is going to go, he's thinking about that but, girl. That's right. Yeah. So you know, these simple devices yeah. were things that, you know, making three minute folky rock records were were yeah. I had no experience. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and unfortunately, with uh, my previous experience with Woody Allen, uh, he was quite detached from the thing. His movie was already completed. Uh, he wasn't particularly enthusiastic about not using orchestral movie music one yep. way or another. But for one thing, I don't think they could afford that. They could afford us. Mm-hmm. And so some of those decisions were made that way. And mm. it, was, uh, it was certainly to our advantage because we learned a lot. Uh, yeah. Interesting how those things turn out, isn't it? It, you know, it really is. It going really in, is. you never know what to expect. And and the, the thing uh, that one, uh, well, I, I, I think of an expression that, that applies to people, but it also applies to situations. There's a wonderful line from a Philip Barry play called The Philadelphia Story. The time to make up your mind about people is never. That's good. Yeah, it's a great, great. I, I use this line all the time, if not in my head, just in life. Uh, but also, you know, when you're going into situations, the time to make up your mind about what's going to happen is uh, almost always counter to the, to the way things end up. And so, so you true. have to remain fluid. You have to remain improvisational in a way. Yeah, yeah. good way of putting it. Yeah, yeah. Um, You've also done you've done TV music, and you've you've uh, one of the things that fascinated me is <clears throat> you are one of the progenitors, if I can put it that way, and you can probably expound on this a little bit more of the tie dye craze. You, you know, uh, I learned it from uh, Annie Thomas, mm-hmm. a wonderful uh, uh, batik artist, was right where she sort of started and then became familiar with the dyes. And uh, she was living on a little 
a plot of land in Burbank, as you go down the hill to tell, you know, to Studio City, yeah. there's a, or there now there is an enormous apartment building, sort of a singles apartment building. But in the old days, it was a dirt road that went off to Lady Barham's Hunting Lodge, mm. okay, from the 30s and 40s, yeah, yeah. when you could hunt in Burbank. Oh. So, yeah. And so that eventually was rented out. It had several buildings, garages. Yeah, yeah, and of yeah. course, in in Los Angeles, you can live quite happily in a garage. I lived in a tent for yeah. a couple of years. And just if you had an alcohol heater for the few nights that was going to be too cold yeah. to, you know, so it's very doable. Lots right. of different right. people were learning tie-dye from tie-dye Annie as she mm. became known. Ah. Uh, so, and, and uh, I enjoyed her company tremendously. She was a real funny Brooklynese gal, just tough as nails mm -hmm. and uh, did not suffer fools gladly in the midst of a lot of fools. I mean, we were <laughs> right. really having what? a foolish period. Wall to wall <laughs> fools. Wall to wall foolish yep. at that time. And, and Ann Thomas is who taught me. And so what happened was uh, I began to sort of show up with old shirts and then learn the various degrees of penetration you'd get from mm -hmm. different degrees of absorption of water and dye. And all right. of this was fascinating to me. Uh, in that time, people would say that that's because you're a Pisces and you uh -huh. like all of that watery stuff. <laughs> so, uh, so I was learning all of that, and I began uh, eventually to say, no, I'm going to do some stuff where I actually start intending to yes. make it this way. Mm -hmm. And I think that was where I went out and bought a uh, pair of uh, white jeans and a white jean Levi jacket and began pretty slowly to uh, tie-dye this jacket. And uh, I was doing it very, very much in small pieces. I'd take it to one degree, you know, get a lot of yellow all in there, and then let that dry and be out in the sun. This, this is a dye that operates by a, a, a photochemical process right. that actually, when you are making a yellow garment, you're working with an intensely purple dye. Mm. Oh, interesting. That you're having to imagine. Now, this is going to be yellow when I'm mm -hmm. all done, right? It's all, so almost then, almost like uh, pottery and, and glazes, where you don't know really know what it's going to turn out to be when you first yes, put it on. Yeah. a very good parallel, yeah. yeah. So eventually, piece by piece, I eventually had that jacket. And uh, along the way, I had a... Uh, just a great turquoise and i did a kind of little something that annie used to say that's guitar fingers that that's why <laughs> you can do that and it was because i was able to get multiple uh surfaces of of cloth folded in a certain way yeah and then you just dip the part that's the fold and not the rest mm. uh, or you 
before you do it, you tie it up and then yeah, you yeah. dip it. Now you get more veiny stuff. Anyway, it was fascinating. Ah, sounds and, fascinating. And, and yeah. I had not intended, oh, I'm going to crash Woodstock and it'll be mm -hmm. a big surprise. <laughs> I had mm -hmm. no intention. And in fact, the day that uh, I, I, well, I'd been talking to Paul Rothschild, my producer, and of course, the wonderful producer of Janis Joplin and The Doors and a right. scad of Electra artists. And he had said, you know, John, uh, there's this thing in Woodstock, New York, and it's sort of still forming, but you ought to keep track of this because this could be crazy big. I, I don't think people realize how big this could be. Mm -hmm. I was pretty much a Paul, uh, 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 Paul Rothschild mini me for a couple of years there learning so many production skills mm -hmm. just sitting around watching what he was doing right uh but i uh, took his uh, opinion very seriously i went to the albany airport by some miracle looking out on the tarmac i saw a guy loading a a, a helicopter and it was the love and spoonfuls first roadie who now was working for the incredible string band. Mm -hmm. I, I gestured to him because windows, there's yeah. doors where you can get down on the tarmac. Right, right. Crazy. So he pointed to the door, come down on the tarmac, which I did. And he quickly explained, or he said, you're trying to get to Woodstock. I said, mm -hmm. that's right. He says, you're not going to be able to do it by anything but this helicopter. Because at the time, all the roads were completely jammed, blocked. Nobody could get anywhere. People were walking for miles to get there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. No buses. No, 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 no other. Way. Nothing. No public transportation. And so, so it was that I got in uh, uh, that helicopter and... Uh, <clears throat> You know, in, in 20 minutes, I was getting that view that people who watch the movie get. Mm -hmm. At the beginning of the movie, when you're flying over the site and you're seeing like yep. nothing but sleeping bags and tents and mm -hmm. Volkswagen buses. And hundreds of thousands of people. Hundreds of thousands of people. And that was when I sort of sat there going... Rothschild was right again. <laughs> and so so it was that I ended up there and just was wandering around the stage very often because there was no security. Right. There wasn't any need for security. We all knew each other. I was standing on the stage on Saturday, uh, Michael Lang and and I think Chip Monk, uh, and they're standing around and saying, so what we really need now is somebody that can hold them while we sweep the rain off the stage. Mm -hmm. you know, what we need is a guy who could like hold them with one acoustic guitar. We can't use the mics. Right. We can't use the amps because of this, the, uh, the water right. on the People are going to get thing. electrocuted. And I'm standing between the two guys. <laughs> and I'm listening to this, and yeah, and that, yeah, that's that's pretty much what we need. Mm -hmm. And then I realize they're both looking at me, <laughs> and I go, guys, I I didn't bring any instruments. I I thought I was coming as a an audience, if you yeah. will. 
uh, <laughs> and nothing else. And and uh, I think it was, I think it was Chip Monk who go in that fantastic voice. Well, you do have several minutes to find one. <laughs> and luckily, Jimmy Harden was in the sort of basement area of the stage, mm -hmm. uh, and he had just played. And uh, I said, Timmy, can I borrow your harmony? And he said, sure. And uh, he's not attached to instruments, but nearly as much as me and many of my right. contemporaries. Uh, so uh, I just so that that was it. I was tuning as I'm running up the stairs and uh, got back up on stage and and uh, just tried to play in that case what I'd been working on the previous half a year and mm -hmm. which nobody was able to hear because MGM had been making it very difficult for Warner Brothers to put out my first solo album. God. It was delayed by an hour, by a, a, a year and a half, mm -hmm. which is in pop music and eternity. Forever, yeah. It's yeah. forever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the rest is history, as they say. And speaking of which, I want to know what's 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 coming up for John Sebastian. What are you working on as an well, artist now? Actually, this COVID kind of worked out and weirdly in in my favor almost mm -hmm. because Arlen Roth and I have been friends for a very long time, and we began uh, playing together, uh, sort of starting to think about a project because. Arlen very often makes uh, instrumental versions of famous records. Mm -hmm. He'll go, and it's usually because he's had a tour with the guy and played all the parts already. Right. Uh, Art Garfunkel, bingo. You want the uh, the Paul Simon guitar parts? Right. He's and got it like, right. completely. Right. So he did uh, a a. a, a a, a, a Simon and Garfunkel record, and he did uh, Acoustic Stones, which was very interesting. Mm -hmm. And Catherine and I are listening to Catherine's my wife. Yep. We're listening at dinner time, uh, and I'm reacting to this stuff, going, you know, this this is cool, and it's also uh, a real good mood for who I am now, if you mm -hmm. will. Yeah. Uh, so. The next time that uh, I talked to Arlen, I had to compliment him and say, man, you know, these are really interesting projects. And he'd go, and you've never done this. <laughs> <laughs> I said, you mean like another version of a song? Yeah. No, I'm afraid I'm scared to death of doing that. Yes. Uh, what's the obvious? Okay. Here comes the old 70 pluser trying to sound like he's 25, mm -hmm. you know, and, and it's a, it's, it's just a horrible equation uh, was what I had thought. Right. And uh, Arlen said, well, you know, we could do it just you and me. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it just suddenly started to sound much more logical. So you're revisiting the songs. So we re are reimagining them. Reimagining is a good a good term. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, I, uh, I've heard that before because I've been involved in a project where somebody was doing a quote unquote remake. 
but they called it a reimagining. And I thought that's much more creative and interesting because you're going at it from a different perspective where yeah. you are now. Yes, right, right. And, and Not then. And it was wonderfully uh, easy, as Arlen said, when he was trying to convince me, he said, John, we'd have half the arrangements licked. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I realized what he's talking about is just want all of your guitar parts yep. and I'll do everything else. Yeah. And that's exactly how it worked out. Uh, and I had recently done some stuff with Eric Parker, a wonderful drummer. And uh, I had this great opportunity to play with Ira Coleman, the virtuoso upright bass player, man, this instrument, uh, he and this instrument just sound heavenly. Oh, it took me weeks to find out and kind of pull it out of them. Oh, yeah. When Sting goes on the road, I'm his bass player. And when you're Sting's bass player. I mean, please. <laughs> you, you, you know yeah. what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. So anyway, he when the, was when the master When the master says, here, take yeah. my instrument. Yeah. That's, that's pretty exactly amazing. right. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and so, so is that this, was... Is this yeah. an album project? So Arlen and I did an entire project to chairs facing each other mm -hmm. mike and mike if you screw up it you just do it again yeah right kind of a thing mm -hmm. no overdubs and, no no well at that stage no yeah, yeah, overdubs right. we're just doing it right and covid hits and suddenly we can't be in a studio the studio's closed everybody you can't get you can't mm -hmm. do this and you can't do that and especially you can't get together Yes, right. So, but I, in talking to Arlen on the phone, I said, Arlen, this is a, one of our strengths. I mean, you do this and I do this. Guys mail you a thing and say, put a telecaster on this. Guys mail yeah. me a thing and say, play harmonica on this. Yeah. So now let's approach this album like we're the sidemen. And we got to decide what to uh, what to add sparsely, and that's the key thing. Was we didn't want it to sound like a Los Angeles record, yes. uh, where you filled in all the possible spots, and you know. So that was that was key to to this project was that it came in these two stages, face to face for all the rhythm parts right. you see the drummer in right there in mm -hmm. Ireland and I began this process of overdubbing and it just was going so well and I said you know Ireland I have one uh thing that I haven't pulled out yet which is that uh I became friends over the last few years with the Mona Lisa twins uh, two Austrian young women who are indeed real twins. And I was introduced when they sent me a uh, little uh, three-minute video of them doing Daydream with one ukulele uh, and a guitar. Uh, and it was the cutest thing I ever saw. And I wrote back, 
uh, to whoever it sent it to. It wasn't the twins. It was somebody else. But I wrote back and I said, you can't imitate this. This is sibling harmony. This is the Everly brothers and the Boswell sisters and Mm -hmm. all of that stuff. And you're never coming close. And it's the best ever. (laughs) Right. Uh, A week later, I get an email from the twins. And they're saying, well, we are so glad that you liked our little version. And we'd like to know if you would play harmonica on this track of ours. Absolutely. I said, so I did the track and I worked uh, to get this enormous harmonica sound because it's rocky what Mm. they were doing. And uh, they loved it, called me again. I did another background part for them. And then the next time I got a call. The oldest uh, by two minutes uh, sister is saying, you know, we're having trouble imagining making this video without you. Uh, Could we possibly talk you in to coming to Manchester and making the video with us? Now, they these young Austrians have moved uh, over the years, they were living in Liverpool because they were playing the Beatles club that, well, at least the new iteration of yep. the, that, uh, the, of the, the cellar. Right, right, right. Uh, it was torn down, and then the town fathers realized they torn what down done. the biggest tourist, tourist attraction, attraction uh, <laughs> ever. So, uh, so they had worked all, all kinds of uh, hard in Liverpool. Eventually, they they moved to uh, Manchester. So it's very easy uh, for me to be convinced by the twins to get on a plane and go to Manchester. And go to Manchester. So anyway, I had a marvelous time with them, uh, made that video. So that was one thing that that happened. And then I said, you know, don't pay me. I'm I'm going to do something. I don't know what. But next thing I do, I'm calling you guys because I want you to sing yeah, on yeah. whatever I'm doing. Right. And that's uh, a hastily made international Uh, a musical agreement which comes to fruition with the John and Arlen record Uh. and uh, they come in and they do some background parts that just stun me and uh, so I still have a couple of kind of rockier things that I'm doing it just so happens that Jeff Muldor has moved into my town Mm. he is the virtuoso soloist from the Jim Queskin jug band yep. uh, and better days. And, and, and uh, he kind of holds back from stardom in a certain way, but is just a, a miraculous singer. And uh, I was doing uh, a jug band music over again. And I said, Jeff, would you tenor me on this? Which he did. And then I, said let's do the same thing with make up your mind and and he tenors me on that and then he uh, eventually leaves town and then very soon thereafter maria muldor Mm -hmm. comes to town as she frequently does she used to live in woodstock Mm -hmm. and uh i draft her on one afternoon to come and sing a tune called stories we could tell together and so uh yeah 
that's what became this project. John and Arlen explore the spoonful songbook. Is it out? It is out. Yes. Well, John, I have I have one more question for you. Sure. All right. And that question I ask everyone at the end of our podcast, and that is, what's the one meal that when you think about your childhood, when you think about growing up, what's the one meal that you that brings back the most extraordinary kind of palette of memories of people and of of a particular story, say, what's the one food that does it for you? Ravioli nudi. I knew it. (laughs) 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 Oh, ladies and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been uh, one of my most enjoyable uh, times talking to anybody, I must say. John, I find you fascinating. It's such a wonderful raconteur, uh, 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 a, an extraordinary human being, and a, an amazing artist. And John, gee, uh, a Greek and Italian had a conversation and didn't end up yelling. That's right. It, it's, it takes considering doing. considering the number of times we've conquered each other, <laughs> <laughs> it's a miracle. John Sebastian, thank you so much. Thank you, thank thank you, thank you. All right, it's been a pleasure.